Hello and welcome to The Good Part. In this first ever episode, I'll be interviewing Carson Easel. Carson is the director of the new formed Space Futures Initiative. I'm very pleased to have him as the first guest of the podcast. Carson, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm very, I'm very excited for the, for the episode. I think my first, my first question would be what got you interested in space governance? Yeah, I think I have always been interested in trying to understand the universe and just think about like very big picture questions. So I was naturally drawn towards philosophy and physics and astrophysics really since high school, but these were not really subjects that I explored in much depth when I was in high school or thought could like lead to actual work. So a lot of the the projects that I did in high school and the activities I participated in were political projects, local elections and campaigning and stuff like this. So I was thinking about these big picture questions, but it was kind of like disconnected from um, a lot of like the, the political work that that I was doing. And I kind of had like both these interests. Um, but the summer before I went to college, I started reading a lot of stuff about existential risks and long-term futures. And I read a lot of blog posts that um, discussed how these issues and thinking about long-term futures might be um, particularly like, tractable and we can actually make a difference on these. And there's work to do to improve long-term futures. And this work um, of like the philosophy and um, and thinking about like what long-term futures might look like um, can actually um, be like work that that one can do. And I was really excited about this. So when I went to college um, for my first year, I got involved in effective altruism and um, got connected to a lot of people who were working on these problems. And I also, at the same time, one of my classes was a freshman seminar on space and time. It was kind of a um, a mixture between like a physics astronomy class, um, but looking at the questions of like space and time and the concepts of space and time from a humanities perspective. And this class um, kind of inspired me to also look in more depth at physics and astrophysics and um, possibly like studying these subjects. Um, and I guess the combination of all these things of like being interested in um, and physics and astrophysics, which I um, currently am planning to to study, and also having these interests in politics and um, and philosophy and just thinking about long term futures, all of ju- this just kind of like converged into space governance being maybe an ideal field for me to work on. The field of space governance, kind of, or at least long term space governance, um, where you're thinking about space governance in the long term future, got started around February of this year within the effective altruism community when. Um, Finn Morehouse at the Future of Humanity Institute um, wrote a post on um, 80,000 Hours, um, the website 80,000 Hours, which was about how space governance might be an area that's um, important, tractable, and neglected, and that maybe some more people should think about working on this. It wasn't definitively saying like, oh, you should um, definitely be working on space governance, and this is like the most impactful thing. Um, But it seemed like space governance might be an area that is impactful, that some more people should be thinking about. And we should like more seriously consider whether this might be an area where people should be working. So I, um, this past spring, I took a semester off school. I had a lot of time on my hands just to think about space governance. So I spent um, several months just like reading um, about existing space policy and frameworks, um, reading academic articles about long-term space futures, and just familiarizing myself with the field and thinking about what might be most impactful within space governance if it is something worth thinking about more and something I should commit a lot of time to. And I kind of came to the conclusion that 
it seems like there's a lot of um, tangible outcomes that we can have in the near future with respect to space governance, changes we can make to current space policy frameworks or um, changing norms and values and how people think about spacefaring. Um, and these things that we do today might have an impact on long-term futures. And this was really exciting to me because it was a, an opportunity to um, to really like work on, on space governance. It seemed like there were like tangible um, reasons to do this. And I was very motivated to keep working on this. So this summer I did a research project with Cambridge Existential Risk Initiative, working on space governance for 10 weeks, just doing an exploratory project on um, what might be important within space governance, just trying to identify the, the main challenges, the um, worst case outcomes if we do not do space governance right and what we might actually want space futures to look like. So I did this project for 10 weeks. And then at the end of this, I um, worked with two other um, individuals, Olaf and Maddie, and the three of us created the Space Futures Initiative. What we are working on right now is just setting up the organization, taking care of logistical things. And our next steps in the fall and moving forward are really getting more people involved in space governance, giving more people opportunities to work on this and just growing the field of space governance and, um, and space futures and seeing the, the research output increase. That all sounds incredibly exciting. It'd be sort of nice to sort of hear about your, your big picture case for why you think uh, space governance could be, could be especially important, um, especially important thing to work on. Or at least the thing some people should be taking, should be taking very seriously. So yeah, so, so the next question is why, what is your big picture case for space governance being important? I think it might make sense to kind of just like start by clarifying like what the questions are that I think about. Um, like space governance is not a term that's commonly used. It's not really a, a defined term yet. And I think it also um, does not necessarily like adequately capture all the questions that I think about and that I think are important. So when we think about space governance, it's easy just to think about government institutions like um, national governments and international institutions like the United Nations and how they think about outer space and the laws that they create and the rules and regulations that they create. And this is one subset of the, the questions that I think about. This is kind of like the traditional um, governance questions of how do we govern activities that are taking place in outer space. The other set of questions that I think about relate more to other things besides traditional governance that can influence behaviors and actions that people take in space, because this is really what governance is all about when we think about traditional governance frameworks is their goal is to promote positive behaviors, um, reduce negative behaviors, um, and with a goal of making, of improving society. In the space, um, in like the outer space domain, it is more difficult for the traditional governance mechanisms that we have to be able to influence behaviors and actions because it's very difficult to enforce um, certain things in the space domain because it's so vast and it's so different from Earth where everything um, is pretty much contained within some country's jurisdiction. There are some exceptions to this. Um, for example, um, maritime law and governing the seas is an example of things that take place outside countries' jurisdictions. So this is one kind of like precedent um, for, for space governance and thinking about um, how we govern things outside of countries' territories. But thinking about space governance is really something that's like unprecedented. Um, and But when it comes to thinking about how we can influence behaviors in space and promote positive ones, 
these traditional governance frameworks might not be enough. There might be other things that are really more responsible for ensuring that actors behave positively in space. And some of these things are just having good norms and values. Um, also thinking about corporate governance and how private actors might be able to um, be the ones that ensure that actors are well-behaved. And maybe it's about corporate norms and values that will have a greater impact on um, space behaviors than traditional governance mechanisms. And then also thinking about how the technologies that we create operate could be something that also influences behaviors in space. So when we expand to the space domain, it is possible that there will be humans in outer space, like biological humans, but there are a lot of limitations to space travel for humans. The, um, the adverse conditions, like there's harsh radiation and humans are just like not equipped for the, the space domain. And in long-term futures, we have um, autonomous um, robotics and artificial intelligence systems that do not suffer these same um, adverse effects in the space domain. It might be the case that a lot of our long-term space futures are like autonomous um, systems and technologies that are doing space activities. So another way that we might be able to encourage positive behavior in the space domain and ensure that long-term space futures are what we want them to be could be just internal to how we create these um, artificial intelligence systems um, and how we develop technologies. This might end up also having a huge impact on um, influencing behaviors in the space domain. And this might be more important than space governance. So when I'm using the term like space governance, I'm really referring to um, all the different levers we could possibly pull to ensure that space futures go well and that we can influence behaviors and actions. Uh, so it's not only this traditional governance, but it's also um, how we create our technologies, it's corporate governance, and it's social norms and values. And the reason that I think promoting positive space futures is something that is important right now is because I do think that some of the actions we take can have effects on long-term futures and um, can help increase the probability that those long-term futures are what we imagine them to be and reduce the probability that those long-term futures are the worst case outcomes that we do not want. So there's certain path dependencies where the actions that we have today will have some implications in the very long-term uh, and because of this, it is important to think about these questions, think about what we want futures to look like, and how we can increase the probability that space futures are what we want them to be. Great. So I think if I can just sort of summarize your sort of current view of space governance, we have um, sort of traditional, traditional governance, um, uh, traditional governance methods, so things like um, countries writing laws and trying to make people follow these laws or countries taxing their citizens and using this revenue to do various things. Um, we have uh, norms and values. Um, it's like trying to, trying to improve um, sort of motivations which, uh, which sort of important actors might have. Corporate governance. Um, and influencing the sort of specific technologies that we that we use in space. Does that sound right? Yes, these are kind of like the the main four areas that I'm currently thinking about. Um, I'm not sure if this is necessarily a comprehensive list. Like maybe there are other considerations for improving long-term space futures that um, that I or others will um, end up thinking about. But right now, these are kind of the four that I think maybe if we work on these areas, we might be able to. Um, improve long-term futures. Great. Um, so then the sort of key claim is 
that we can predictably sort of shift one of these four variables, and this will have a sustained positive outcome on how um, on how a sort of spacefaring humanity humanity would go. Um, and so, what's the what's the case that we can get that we can both that these both these sort of past tendencies do exist, and that uh, maybe not now, but at some point, at some point before we start we start going into space, that we'll that we'll know um, which of these levers we should be pushing on and how to get to try and improve the probability to get these good outcomes. The problem with thinking about influencing long-term futures and kind of knowing like what will work and what will not work is that there are relatively few feedback loops on um, changing things and then seeing the implications of those changes that you make. So um, if we set up some traditional governance system that we think is optimal for governing the space domain into the long-term future, we really will not know how successful this governance institution or this governance framework will be until the long-term future when we actually have a wide variety of space actors, far distances, and we see how effective our governance system is. And this is not really a bet that we want to take. We can't really afford to wait um, this long. And once we get to a point where we are in a long-term future and we have this space governance, um, this space governance framework and that space governance framework breaks down, it might be uh, a lost cause for um, for like coordination and making sure these long-term futures are as we want them to be. And because of these like slow feedback loops, it's pretty important to work on all the different areas that we think might be potential levers to improve futures. So it's really not a question of which one of these we should be working on. Of course, we could do more research and analysis and decide that some might be more tractable than others and some might be more impactful than others, but it'll be very difficult to eliminate any of these categories. And if there's a chance we think any of them could work, we'll probably want to work on all of them. Um, and I guess the reason that I think that we might be able to influence futures in space, um, and the reason I think there are path dependencies, is because when we think about the, the very far future, um, we will not only have um, other civilizations and settlers, like say, like on on Mars, on the Moon, um, this is like stuff that people are talking about now. Um, there are planned missions to return humans to um, the lunar surface in the middle of this century, establish a base camp on the lunar surface um, by the 2030s. Um, SpaceX has plans to land humans on Mars um, within the next decade or so. So, when we think about like space futures and the space activities that are ahead. Um, these are like the near-term activities that we expect. But in the very far future, when we have advanced technologies that enable a lot more activities in the space domain, we might end up having civilizations, um, whether these are um, biological or technological, but they're more likely to be technological civilizations at very far distances, so what interstellar distances. Uh, what do you mean by technological civilization? Okay. So we expect these civilizations that are at very far distances to primarily be artificial intelligence systems and autonomous systems that are conducting activities. So this is basically like what a, a technological civilization would be. But all of these civilizations at far distances, whether they're biological or technological, um, would emerge from the Earth. And at this point in the very far future, when we have civilizations throughout the galaxy, they will be at very far distances from each other. It will be much more difficult to 
communicate and coordinate activities. So before we have kind of this expansion phase where we have um, actors that become like distributed throughout the galaxy, right now might be kind of like the best time to set the norms and values that um, will be will be held by these civilizations throughout the galaxy. Um, and also to create governance frameworks that might be able to connect these actors together. So even though we have actors that are at very far distances and it might take many light years for um, for information to travel between civilizations in the in the very far future, we might be able to have some system of communication, some established channels of communication between these civilizations, such that even if it takes a very long time for them to receive information from one another, they still um, are able to receive this information at some point and have some level of coordination, which is better than no coordination. And because we're at this stage now where everyone's located um, on Earth, this is a good time to have those conversations about what we might want these far futures to look like, how we might want these coordination framework to be set up, uh, and what we want these norms and values to be. Because once we start expanding into the space domain, it will be much more difficult to set up this infrastructure and to have um, these conversations and reflect on our norms and values. And I do think that the discussions that we have now that guide the initial space actors um, that venture out into space will have pretty substantial implications on far futures and what our um, settlements end up looking like in the very far future. Uh, so this is kind of what I mean by the path dependencies on these far futures might depend on conversations and activities that take place now. So what sorts of what sorts of thing could, things that we could do in the next 10 years we should be excited about from a space governance point of view and why? I think the first set of things that we can do involves actual traditional governance mechanisms and improving their ability to foresee future developments in the space domain um, and also to be able to enforce things more effectively in the in the space domain. As space activities are increasing and we're having more long-term space activities um, being conducted and space activities that are farther from Earth, it's more difficult for actors to be able to supervise these activities. Um, so with the Outer Space Treaty, which is um, a United Nations treaty that is kind of like the primary treaty, um, the most comprehensive one that defines the set of like international um, like norms and rules for um, for space regulation, national governments are responsible for authorizing and supervising space activities by private actors. Um, so for example, if you have a private company that does space activities in the United States, it is the responsibility of the United States government to supervise these space activities. But when you have space activities that are being conducted, say on the moon or um, in the asteroid belt, if it's asteroid mining, um, or activities that are being conducted further away, um, farther in the future, it's going to be very difficult for national governments to supervise these space activities. So it's worth thinking about how, as space activities increase in their duration and um, they occur at farther distances, how we can like rework this governance framework to ensure that space activities at farther distances can be um, properly like supervised and enforced. So one thing that might be able to do this is just improving space situational awareness at farther distances. So having satellites in orbit around the moon or having a register of activities that are occurring on the lunar surface 
um, where private actors have to record all the um, operations that are being conducted on the lunar surface, even over long distances. Having something like this, or I'm um, sorry, long durations, um, having something like this would be um, really good for just improving knowledge of what's um, happening in outer space, what the activities are that are being conducted, and this would be tangible progress. Um, so yeah, this is one of the the policy solutions that um, I think could be really impactful for, for space governance, especially in the near term. Um, and I think this could be something that is um, is potentially implementable. And so thinking more long term now, um, what does a what does a good space future look like? You know, humanity has like a stable intersolar civilization. Um, what would a what's a positive vision of that? What's the ninetieth centile case of that going well? When I think about kind of like long-term space futures, the perspective that I generally take is starting from the worst case outcomes and then working backwards to try to think of like policy proposals or norms and values that can help us avoid these, these worst case outcomes. So some of these worst case outcomes could be um, totalitarian powers that emerge in the space domain that um, have power over a, a large portion of the galaxy or maybe have complete control over a star system, and they're able to enforce this control because they have access to a lot of compute and a lot of energy from the central star in this um, star system. Um, it gives them like exponentially more power than any actor on Earth might have. And um, they can also have really good surveillance of an entire star system or why region. Would be, of, you know, why, why would they be able to have especially good surveillance? That feels more difficult from space than it does not. You could have, um, so so having good surveillance of uh, a star system is definitely more difficult than a celestial body. Um, but we could envision, for example, like a, a network of probes throughout uh, a star system that kind of record everything that's going on. Um, or you could alternatively have like very large telescopes and cameras that are within star systems that um, can see to a pretty high resolution a lot of the activities that um, are occurring throughout that star system. And the, the real danger with, um, with um, the power dynamics here comes from the fact that if you have one actor that controls this surveillance network, whatever it might be, um, whether it's like a, a central um, telescope, say, or whether it's like a distributed network of probes, if you have one actor that controls this, that's a, a huge asymmetric power advantage. So it is more difficult to set up these surveillance networks, but that's what makes the possibility of totalitarianism more probable is it might be the case that this is kind of a natural monopoly where we expect very few actors to um, establish these surveillance systems. Um, and if one actor has the surveillance system over a star system, that's a huge advantage and it might contribute to them being able to establish authoritarian or totalitarian control. Um, so yeah, it's less a, a question of the difficulty um, when we have very advanced technologies, it'll be a huge undertaking, but something's feasible. And it's more just a, um, a matter of, it might be one actor that controls this whole surveillance network. Okay, so now moving on to conflict which you might see in space. How how afraid do you have any sense how afraid we should be of um, sort of conflicts between human civilizations in space? Um, and also potential conflicts between human civilizations and alien civilizations. And is there anything that we can do now 
um, do you think would uh, reasonably robustly make that less likely? In terms of conflicts in space between human civilizations, I think, um, or between human actors, I think more about near-term space futures where you have these competitive dynamics between the United States and China and the respective like private actors that are within their jurisdictions and there's other space powers as well. And kind of this um, competitive pressure to establish control over the space domain um, within the solar system. So the lunar surface, the Martian surface, um, Earth's orbit, the asteroid belt, this kind of competition might lead to tension that results in um, war that takes place in the space domain. And these wars do have the potential to be very devastating. Um, so when we think about wars in this time period, which this is really thinking in terms of like next 50 years, next 100 years, when we have um, a lot of powers trying to um, vie for control of the solar system, these wars are probably going to look fairly similar to um, what a, a war would look like without this conflict in space between great powers, where still most infrastructure and industry and activities are on Earth and space is just a domain where there's um, the competitive pressures and where tension is growing. But if you're the United States or you're China and you're in a war with your adversary, most of the conflict is still going to be taking place on Earth. So there would be a very high risk of nuclear conflict on Earth, and this could be very devastating for terrestrial civilization. So space is kind of an aggravating factor that might make this war more likely. And there might be conflict in the space domain too. In Even in these worlds, like say 50 years in the future, most space activities will definitely be between autonomous, um, um, or mostly be autonomous actors. So there might be attempts to um, launch kinetic attacks against adversarial satellites and stuff like this to disable their communication systems or other utilities that depend on satellites. And there's also the potential for um, asteroid deflection technology to come into play. So this is um, one form of um, warfare that might be more devastating than nuclear weapons is if one side can figure out how to deflect an asteroid um, to use this against an adversary. So direct in an in intentional direction, um, this could be um, a, a potential concern. And this seems like a technology that would be very difficult to create that might be um, much further in the future. And it seems like it would be incredibly difficult to deflect an asteroid and use this as a weapon against your adversary um, to hit their um, their country on the um, on the terrestrial surface. Um, but this is a definitely a, a technology we're thinking about um, and an element of outer space that might make warfare more deadly. When we think about um, warfare in the farther future, between these technological civilizations that might be, say, in different star systems, it's much more difficult to conceptualize what this war would look like because over such large distances, um, it's just hard to like think about how you would go about um, attacking your enemy. Star systems are, or the, the closest star system to our solar system is about four light years away. Um, and it's also very difficult to send probes or to send um, spacecraft that would travel anywhere near the speed. So current proposals for um, for like light sails, which are very like thin, um, very thin crafts that we could propel with lasers at um, at this star system, will travel at about 0.2 the speed of light, um, which would still take about 20 years to get there. So we're thinking about like very long travel times to to cross space, and um, these wars will be taking place over very large distances. So if they do occur, we can expect them to be like very very long wars, um, where it will take uh, a long time 
for information to travel from the battlefront, whatever that might look like, where maybe there's um, probes that are attempting to like disable each other and kind of like the, the command center within uh, a given star system. But another um, form of like kind of conflict between civilizations might just be like rapid expansion, where if you have one um, actor who controls like a few star systems and another actor who controls a few other star systems, they might not necessarily attack each other, but just try to expand as quickly as possible and secure as much of the galaxy as they can for themselves. Um, and this form of like warfare or conflict or like competitive pressure is especially likely um, before we fill up the entire universe, which will take or the entire galaxy, um, which will take a very long time. So it might be the case that once we are expanding at these interstellar distances, there's so much, um, so many star systems where nobody is located that there's really not a lot of conflict for a while because um, it seems pretty difficult to fight this war. It seems like it could be pretty devastating, and there's just a lot more um, uncontested um, space that you could grab for yourself. Once we do fill up the galaxy, you might see more conflict where you have. Um, certain actors trying to um, attack star systems that are held by other actors. Um, and these are these are conflicts that are kind of like hard to um, understand like what they would look like. Um, they would be very devastating. Asteroid deflection technology is very likely to come into play in these conflicts. If you could deflect an asteroid at um, at a star system that's controlled by an adversary. Uh, and we're really getting into like sci-fi territory and just like speculating about what this warfare might look like. But it's definitely something that is worth avoiding. Um, we would not want like conflict between civilizations and different star systems. So if we can improve like coordination and norms and values and ensure that most actors in outer space are peaceful and not looking for conflict like this, we might be able to reduce the probability of wars like this occurring in the future, which would be like a robustly good outcome. You, you expect conflicts to play out. It seems important the sort of relative um, power of uh, China versus the US versus potentially India and potentially the European Union. Do you have a sense of sort of which of these players, of sort of the size of these, of the size of the gaps between these different players and the uh, sort which would change the size of the gaps or change the order of the players. What you mean like the um like the size of the gaps between the players like right now? Right now, yeah, right now. So right now the United States is uh, like the nation with the the most knowledge of the space domain and the most activities going on and um United States has um has some degree of like um superiority in space over other powers. Um but China is not far behind the United States. Some estimates suggest that like China will be like a similarly advanced space power by about 2030. And then there are quite a few like emerging space powers as well. Um, India has a much bigger presence in space than they used to. The United Arab Emirates is, uh, has a growing space program. Japan is a fairly big player, the European Union as well. So there are a lot of countries and private actors in different countries that we expect will want to have space activities. Um, and there might be like competitive dynamics between a lot of these players. So the Outer Space Treaty, which um, was was drafted in 1967, and um, all all spacefaring nations are bound by the Outer Space Treaty. Um, it um, binds nations to not limiting the access of other actors to outer space. So there is like a binding rule that um, the United States, even if they are ahead of the space domain and could prevent other actors from using it, um, they are not allowed to limit access from for China 
um, or for any of their adversaries. Um, and so far, this seems to be working. There have not really been attempts to limit others' access to um, to the outer space domain. Um, if one side does have a huge asymmetrical advantage over another side, though, um, in space, there might be a risk of them deciding that they no longer need to follow along with these norms and um, could prevent others' access to space and establish a complete domination of the space domain for themselves. And this would be very concerning. So it is, it does seem like a good thing to ensure that an asymmetric advantage like this um, does not develop, whether that would be like the United States or China, um, because the concern would be that they could just decide um, that they want to have complete control of the space domain and not allow other actors to access certain regions of space or conduct certain activities. So having many agents in space and many states in space is a good thing to ensure this like decentralization, this balance of power. Um, but we also, at the same time, need to um, prevent conflict from taking place and ensure that there's coordination between these different actors um, so that space doesn't become a domain which aggravates tension between different nations and then leads to uh, a conflict, whether that's like in space or on Earth. Um, maybe the follow-up question to that is, um, how important do you expect private actors to be relative to state actors? And how important are private actors already relative to state actors? Private actors have been becoming increasingly important relative to state actors. So currently, the main demand for space services um, still comes from governments. So for example, NASA has contracts um, with SpaceX and other private actors to um, carry their payloads. Um, so using like SpaceX's rockets to carry the payloads of NASA um, to like the, the lunar surface or to the International Space Station. Um, and you have these private actors who are right now sustained by um, government contracts. So currently there is this um, these private par um, public partnerships that are um, kind of like allowing this like private space industry to emerge. But farther in the future, uh, in say like 10, 20 years, I do expect private actors to play an even larger role in the space domain. And the reason for this is once you kind of have a lot of space activities going on and you have space settlements, um, say like small colonies on the lunar surface and maybe the Martian surface, um, and you have a lot more activities that people want to conduct in space. So for example, um, biology research, um, some biology research can be conducted um, in space under microgravity conditions. And this could allow us to um, do things such as like 3D printing organs, um, which would not be possible on Earth. So there's a lot of things like this, a lot of activities that could take place in the space domain. And we'll have all these private actors or public actors um, that are trying to do particular things in space. And as a result of this, there will be a lot of in-space demand for different goods and different services. And once this demand um, for different space services is coming from space and it's coming from um, a lot more actors than national governments, so you have some public projects going on in space and you have um, other private activities, there's a much wider market that is no longer fully dependent on um, governments to sell to. And this will allow for more business models in outer space to become profitable and it will allow for a proliferation of private space activities to kind of like create this whole in-space economy. So the importance of private actors in space is increasing and our current international outer space legislation, like the Outer Space Treaty, um, was drafted in the 1960s and some other tre um, treaties in the 1970s when actors were um, just governments and national governments. So these treaties really do not um, account for private actors as much as they should. Um, 
And it would make sense for us to consider adjusting our framework or thinking about the adjustments we would need to make to our space governance framework, given we have all these emerging private actors. So one maybe quite scary, at least to me, scenario, um, is that if we do we do space colonization in a similar way to where it's the way in which colonization, colonization happened on Earth. Um, now, there aren't, you know, probably aren't any uh, indigenous peoples we'd have to encounter in space. But one could imagine... One could imagine space being uh, set primarily by primarily by companies who bring with uh, people, and then they're able to have uh, able to have like sovereignty over sort of the sorts of areas which they've which they've expanded into. And this seems quite a scary outcome to me. Do you have um do you have thoughts both on how likely this outcome is and maybe thoughts on how troubling you think it is? There is a clause in the Outer Space Treaty um, that establishes um, non-appropriation of celestial bodies. So pretty much um, property rights in space for private actors or national governments are not allowed right now. But as we see like this proliferation of space activities and there's governments and private actors that are interested in setting up like base camps on the moon or um, mining asteroids and collecting resources, which is another form of appropriation, we're seeing um, these private actors and um, the governments in which, or the, the countries in which they're located, for example, like the United States, um, proposing new um, frameworks and governance frameworks to allow um, for like some form of property rights in the space domain and for making sure that these activities that private actors want to do, such as like utilize space resources, are um, legal and have legal frameworks. Uh, two examples of this. Um, one includes, so there is a proposal that is included in like many um, many documents that have been created in the past like five or ten years um, for um, for space governance frameworks called safety zones, where basically if you have an activity taking place on um, say like the lunar surface, you can establish a safety zone around that location where you are conducting this activity. And the justification for this, the legal justification, is that in the outer space treaty, there's another clause that bans like harmful interference with space activities. So if you have space activity taking place on the lunar surface, such as say you have a, a telescope on the dark side of the moon for astronomical observation, you are protected from harmful interference from other actors with the space activity that you have. Um, so safety zones are a way to um, outline like the borders of where your space activity is taking place. And this could have um, this could be seen as establishing like property rights and giving an actor the right to this region of space where they're conducting the activity. And it could kind of lead to first come, first serve dynamics to grab up um, valuable locations like on the lunar surface or beyond. But there is pretty wide support for it from like a protection from harmful interference perspective. And just practically, as these space activities are increasing, it does make sense for some form of like property rights to, to exist. Um, and for this to be done in like a fair and equitable way, but it does make sense um, for for these like regions to exist to enable like different space activities. Um, and then another trend we're seeing is that even though the Outer Space Treaty um, prevents the appropriation of um, of outer space national governments with private actors that want to conduct like space mining and asteroid mining um, are passing national legislation to um, basically make space mining. Um, and the collection of resources in outer space legal. So the United States has passed a law like this. Um, Luxembourg has passed a law like this. Um, Japan and the United Arab Emirates have also passed similar laws. So this is like a growing trend and probably one that we expect to see continue. 
So there is some hesitancy and pushback on appropriation of outer space, but in general, the trend does seem to be moving toward um, allowing for this appropriation. And the measures that are going in place to allow for appropriation seem to be supporting advanced space actors. Um, it does seem like a first come, first serve basis, and this does seem pretty concerning. And on that note, Carson, I think we'll end this first episode of The Good Pod. Thanks so much for being for coming on. I hope you had a good time. I did. Thank you for having me on your first episode. I'm honored to be the first guest. Wonderful. Um, I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll have you back uh, at some later date, and you give us some more updates on how the Space Future Initiative is going. Thank you. I would love to be back.